Broadcasting from Rancho Cucamonga, California, this is A History of California. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Last episode, we finally slowed down the narrative pace a bit and focused on the allegedly sacred expedition of 1769 to 1770, in which Spanish colonizers successfully established Franciscan missions and military presidios at San Diego and at Monterey, the first two of their kinds in what the Spaniards had dubbed Alta California. This episode, we'll focus on the early development of the California missions under their first leader, Junipero Serra. And the next episode, we'll focus on indigenous Californians' resistance to and uprisings against this imposition of white supremacist colonization in their various homelands. White supremacy defined the social order of the Spanish Empire. For over two and a half centuries prior to the 1770s, Privately funded conquistadors and then official royal administrators created and maintained a colonial society in the Americas that ranked Spanish-born quote-unquote white residents above all others. Ranked under them were the American-born descendants of the Spanish-born colonists, known in Spanish America as criollos, and ranked below them were all the people of quote-unquote mixed backgrounds that included ancestors from European colonists, from enslaved people originally from Africa's West Coast, and from the universe of indigenous American cultures that existed prior to Spanish colonization. Amid this ranked social order, indigenous Americans faced an additional distinction imposed by the Spaniards. Whether they were considered to be gente de razón, literally people of reason, or not, indigenous Americans who had not embraced Spanish language, customs, and culture were consequently not considered to be gente de razón. Holding the reins of the Spanish Empire in the late 1700s, the Bourbon dynasty sitting the throne in Madrid fully intended to preserve this ranked society in the colonies. Spurred by the movements of his rival European heads of state in London and St. Petersburg, Spanish King Carlos III sought to secure the northern frontier of his claims in North America, and especially its western coastline. Hence, that meant turning the people who already lived there on the coast into Spanish Empire-approved gente de razón. It should be understood, however, that what happens next here is a case of high irony. Carlos III and his advisors operated under Enlightenment influences of rationality and suspicion of religion-induced superstition. And yet, to execute the process of acculturating indigenous Californians into subjects of this rational king of Spain, the decision makers in Madrid turned to one of the most conservative segments of Spanish society, Franciscan friars. At the head of these conservative Franciscans was Junipero Serra, and the tension between their backward-looking, medieval-inspired viewpoint and the relatively more progressive Enlightenment concepts being pushed through by Bourbon reformers would result in open, years-long conflicts between Sarah and pretty much whoever happened to represent secular civil authority in Alta, California. 
As Father Junipero Serra was unpacking the Spanish packet boat, the San Antonio, and establishing his missionary headquarters at Monterey, his mind harbored an idealized image of the native Californians offering spontaneous, mutual generosity with Franciscan missionaries as a pathway towards voluntarily accepting Catholic Christianity. After all, previous encounters between Spaniards and indigenous Californians had included generous donations of food to the colonizers from native peoples, sometimes expecting trade from the colonizers in return, and sometimes not. With missions established now among the Kumayai at San Diego and the Rumsinoloni and Esalen peoples near Monterey, Sarah planned mission number three to be located along the Southern Channel that was home to what the Spaniards had already recognized as the densest populated coastal society, the Chumash. It was to be dedicated to San Buenaventura, though the saint would do little to intercede in the various delays that would push back the construction of missions along the Santa Barbara Channel. Sarah then began filling in the gaps between the first three in his head, adding San Antonio in the north and San Gabriel in the south, then getting the idea of adding two to three more missions between all of those. These were ambitious plans, and for the rest of his life, Sarah would attempt to establish this ladder of missions from San Diego to Monterey and attempt to deflect away any political opposition to his Franciscan vision. In early June of 1770, Sarah formally founded the Mission San Carlos Borromeo at Monterey on Pentecost Sunday, the seventh Sunday after Easter. Glancing back at the calendar, Sarah selected June 14th, the feast day of Corpus Christi, to perform a holy procession around the mission site at Monterey, as Sarah said in order to, quote, drive out any little devils, or diablitos, that might lurk in the land, unquote. Sarah added an additional layer of Catholic mysticism to the day's events, claiming that he had miraculously located lanterns on board the San Antonio that had previously been unaccounted for to be used in the holy procession. Though garrison commander and Lieutenant Governor Pedro Fajes quietly seethed that this haughty priest was claiming inventory off the ship that Fajes believed was meant for the Presidio. For the rest of 1770, Sarah would be unsuccessful in reaching out to the Rumsinoloni people of the Monterey Bay region. By the middle of spring 1771, Sarah and the colonizers had established contact, mostly in the form of Rumson donations of indigenous food to the malnourished Spaniards, whose old world crops were failing in this not yet well-known climate. Though Sarah was able to baptize 13 Rumson children, it was usually with the understanding that the friars would exchange gifts to the indigenous parents in return, and the Rumpson Ohlone generally steered clear of the Spanish encampment on the shoreline. In May of 1771, the San Antonio returns to Monterey with fresh supplies of food and a cadre of 10 additional Franciscan missionaries, ready and willing to begin implementing Sarah's vision in California. A couple months later, on July 7th, Sarah dispatched six of the missionaries back south to San Diego on board the San Antonio, ordering Pedro Benito Cambon and Angel Somera to found Mission San Gabriel among the Tongva speakers, Francisco Dumetz and Luis Jaime to be stationed at San Diego, and the remaining two were allowed to return home and begin their retirement, probably after realizing the daunting task that lay before them on the frontier. Conveniently for Sarah, 
Governor Pedro Fajes got on board the ship and went with them. The very next day, July 8, 1771, Sarah departed Monterey with the friars Miguel Pieras and Buenaventura Citar, traveling 85 miles to the southeast into the Santa Lucia mountain range, all without any sort of approval from Governor Fajes, into the territory of Salinan speakers. Five days later, the three friars and their military escorts entered the northern end of a long valley within the Santa Lucias, and there they founded the third mission in Alta California, Mission San Antonio de Padua. They followed the usual routine, setting up a large cross, building a rudimentary shelter, consecrating an altar, and hanging up the church bells. Almost immediately after these bells had been unpacked from the mules and hung on some large trees close by, Sarah began frantically ringing them. Through the din of the bells, Sarah could be heard yelling, quote, Come, you Gentiles, come to the Holy Church, come receive the faith of Jesus Christ. When Father Pieres asks whom Sarah was hollering at, the Father President replied, quote, I wish that this bell were heard throughout the world as the Venerable Mother Maria de Agreda desired it, or at least that it were heard by every pagan who lives in the Sierra, unquote. However, the miraculously bilocating nun had little effect on the Salinans, and precisely one Salinan man was present for the inaugural mass at San Antonio. Similar to San Carlos back up in Monterey, Mission San Antonio would get to a slow start in converting the local native peoples to Catholicism, and only four indigenous people were baptized in the first summer there, all of whom were children. Meanwhile, back down in San Diego, the San Antonio had dropped anchor in the harbor by early August, and the missionaries sent south by Sarah prepared to take up their posts. On the 14th of August, the friars Cambon and Somera, with an escort of 10 soldiers and a few mule drivers, set out north from San Diego with the intention of establishing Mission San Gabriel somewhere along the overland route the sacred expedition had taken a couple of years earlier. About a week into their march north into the center of Tongva lands, the colonizers encountered a large number of Tongva speakers that at first appeared to threaten the Spanish convoy. And this is where I need to insert a giant asterisk next to what I'm about to say happened here at this encounter between the Mission San Gabriel founders and the group of indigenous Tongva people. Because the source we have for this incident, and one I'll quote from directly here in a sec, is a biography of Junipero Serra written by his old friend, traveling partner, and fellow Franciscan friar from Mallorca, Francisco Palau. Palau's biography of Serra, published a mere year after Serra's death, can more accurately be described as a hagiography, a kind of biography that idealizes its subject, or in the case of the Catholic Church, a story that features the miraculous works of a saint. And as of 2015, Junipero Serra is formally recognized as a saint. And true to hagiographic form, Palau stuffs his account of Serra's life among the missions with miraculous acts that would imply they all had, like, God's favor for this entire project on the far northwestern frontier of New Spain. So then, the following excerpt comes from an idealized biography of a Franciscan friar written by another Franciscan friar. This is the size of the asterisk you should put next to their description of indigenous behavior 
when the Tongva met the missionaries there in the summer of 1771. Quote, After traveling about 40 leagues, they arrived at the Rio de los Temblores, which had been so named since the days of the first expedition. When the group was deciding on the choice of a site, a numerous band of pagans, led by two chiefs and armed, made its appearance. Amid fearful war cries, they attempted to impede the mission's founding. One of the fathers, fearing that a battle was imminent and that casualties would result, brought forth a canvas painting which depicted Our Lady of Sorrows and held it up for those barbarians to see. No sooner was this done than they were conquered by that beautiful image. They threw down their bows and arrows, and the two chiefs rushed forward to place at the feet of the Sovereign Queen the beads they wore around their necks as gifts of their great esteem. Thereby, they showed they wanted to be at peace with us. They called together the Indians of the nearby villages, once an ever-growing number of men, women, and children came to see the Most Holy Virgin. They came bearing various seeds, which they placed at the feet of the Most Blessed Lady, thinking she would consume them as other humans did. Palau later continues, quote, After the pagans of Mission San Gabriel had seen the painting of Our Lady, they changed so much that they came time and again to visit the friars, nor could they find sufficient means to show their happiness that the friars had come to live among them. The friars tried to reciprocate with endearing expressions and with gifts, unquote. I, honestly, have no idea what to make of this. Of course, it remains possible that the Tongva recognized the painted depiction of the Virgin Mary as some sort of symbol of goodwill on the part of the Spaniards, and it also remains entirely possible that Palau could have just made this up. It almost too perfectly encapsulates how the Franciscans ideally believed the indigenous peoples of Alta California would respond to them. Instant native recognition of the awesome holiness of the colonizer's Catholic faith, spontaneous material generosity, and ongoing gratitude for the Spaniards' presence. Given that Palau's biography of Sarah is also the earliest written work of history focusing on the California missions, many of Palau's stories are reprinted by modern histories and presented as known facts. Suffice to say, there is no way I could give that preceding excerpt the known fact stamp of approval, but it does a pretty good job illustrating just what was floating around inside the tonsured heads of these various missionary friars. In September 1771, the friars Cambon and Somera formally established mission number four, that of San Gabriel, on the western edge of the Whittier Narrows, where the San Gabriel River flows through the Puente Hills on the southern edge of the San Gabriel Valley, flowing from its source in the San Gabriel Mountains. The Tongva, of course, had distinct names for all of these places, but such is the power of the missions in California's own founding mythology that the nearest mission name ends up being applied here to like every naturally occurring feature within eyesight of it, by both Spanish and English-speaking colonizers alike. The Tongva themselves quickly engaged with the mission and came to the encampment to trade or receive gifts for their children. Hoping to establish an inviting atmosphere, the Padres at first instituted an open-door policy at San Gabriel that allowed as many Tongva speakers as were willing to come and go as they pleased. However, once Governor Fajes arrived to inspect the new mission, 
He was horrified at the security implications of having so many people constantly coming and going, and so closed the mission to any indigenous person that wasn't already baptized. That, plus what the Padres viewed as Fahe's too lenient treatment of guard soldiers that had sexually assaulted Tongva women from the nearby villages, only further widens the divide between the Franciscans and secular military authority. When Governor Fajes returned back to Monterey, he and Sarah took up a personal feud that echoed the wider institutional conflict between military authority and Franciscan missionaries in Alta, California. There were disagreements over administrative decisions, like exactly how many soldiers and supplies would be dedicated to establishing new missions rather than keeping the Army Presidios manned and provisioned. But there were also arguments between Sarah and Fajes individually with Fajes complaining about shoddy church construction and an improper burial location of a Spanish soldier at Mission San Carlos, while Sarah complains that the mission keys being kept at the military presidio, the lack of properly garrisoned soldiers for the existing missions, and soldiers interfering in the Franciscans doling out physical punishments to indigenous people on the mission grounds. Having reached his limit, Sarah decided to relocate Mission San Carlos a couple miles south to the other side of a low chain of hills overlooking Monterey, this time setting up shop along the Carmel River, closer to the nearby Rumpson Ohlone villages and farther from the Monterey Presidio. Even through these early conflicts, Sarah remained confident he had the ultimate political backing of the Viceroy of New Spain, Carlos Francisco de Croix, which he could fall back on if Fajes proved too great a hindrance to Sarah's plans. However, this confidence ended in September of 1771, just as Sarah was relocating the mission San Carlos when word reached Monterey that a new viceroy had been installed in Mexico City. At this point, though the Spaniards now had at least a full year's worth of experience attempting to grow crops at Monterey, the colonizers still relied on imports of food and supplies from the Mexican interior shipped on either one of two boats the San Antonio, or the San Carlos. For reasons of inclement weather and a damaged rudder, neither ship was able to deliver its cargo to Monterey in late 1771, and by early 1772, both the soldiers and missionaries began experiencing famine. Facing the shared prospect of starving to death or being totally dependent on donations of food from the Rumsinaloni people, both Nipero Serra and Governor Fajes decided to travel overland to San Diego to see if maybe between the two of them, they could figure out a way to get the stalled food shipments up to Monterey. Leaving behind the collection of leaky shacks and still under construction church that passed for a mission, Sarah and Fajes departed in August of 1772. By late August, Sarah and Fajes were at Mission San Antonio and continuing further south amid the coast ranges, they reached the site of what was soon to be Mission San Luis Obispo, fifth in the state. Sarah formally founded the mission on September 1st, 1772, and he and Fajes continued south while leaving behind one missionary, four guard soldiers, and two natives of Baja there at San Luis Obispo to build out the new mission. Similar to early experiences at the other missions, the colonizers were at first dependent on trade with the local northern Chumash, for food and other necessities, and the first batch of baptisms performed at San Luis Obispo were all of children. 
Sarah and Fajes finally reached San Diego on September 11th, though the road trip did little to mend their personal relationship. The two men continued to argue over the size of troop escorts, distribution of mules and other supplies, and ultimately the question of how power would be divided among the various branches of Spanish colonization. Governor Fajes, who like King Carlos III was influenced by Enlightenment concepts, was put off by the total control over indigenous day-to-day -day life that Sarah believed was essential to the conversion process. Sarah would then be especially offended by Fajes's proposal to restrict the priest's access to native Californians to exclusively saying mass. Encouraged by the other Franciscan friars present at San Diego, Sarah decided to solve the Fajes problem by going directly over the governor's head and presenting himself to the new viceroy in Mexico City, Antonio Maria de Bucarelli, and ask him in a face-to-face -face meeting to boot Fajes out of Alta California. On October 17, 1772, Sarah boarded the embarking San Antonio and carried with him reports from other Franciscan missionaries to be delivered to higher-ups at the Apostolic College of San Fernando in Mexico City, under whose auspices all of these missionary friars, including Sarah, were technically operating. One such report was written by Luis Jaime, whom Sarah had stationed at San Diego. In the letter, Jaime first complains of insufficient food, then pivots to Governor Fajes not punishing rapist soldiers seriously enough. Quote, At one of these Kumayai villages near the mission of San Diego, which said village is very large, and which is on the road to Monterey, the Gentiles therein many times have been on the point of coming here to kill us all. And the reason for this is that some soldiers went there and raped their women, and other soldiers who were carrying the mail to Monterey turned their animals into their fields and they ate up their crops. Three other Kumayai villages about a league or a league and a half from here have reported the same thing to me several times." Unquote. Jaime then details specific allegations against individually identified Spanish leather jacket clad soldiers. In the first case, people from the Kumayai village nearest to Mission San Diego reported that an unmarried Kumayai woman was pregnant as a result of rape by three soldiers, whom they identified by name. Friar Jaime is rightfully horrified by the allegations, though through his writing, he seems equally distressed at the woman's attempts to abort the pregnancy, as he seems to be about the sexual assault itself. In a second case, two Kumayai women told Jaime that four Spanish soldiers, including one from the prior case, had raped them and that a male Kumayai eyewitness to the act could verify their accusation. Jaime investigated the claims and soon discovered that the corporal at the head of the mission guard was about to punish the male Kumayai witness for breaking his silence, with the soldiers apparently not even considering the possibility that the women would speak for themselves on the matter. Friar Jaime was ultimately able to free the Kumayai man before the soldiers could inflict their punishment on him, though his ultimate concern appears to be that rapist soldiers were merely setting a bad example for recent converts to Catholicism, as if sexual assault was a symbol of colonizer hypocrisy rather than an abhorrent act in and of itself. Jaime concluded the letter to his superiors at the College of San Fernando by asking for a sundial to be sent to San Diego. After multiple illnesses and threats of near death, 
Sarah arrived at the College of San Fernando on February 6, 1773. Sarah delivered the letters from Jaime and the Franciscan friars and set about preparing for his meeting with the Viceroy of New Spain. In spring of 1773, Viceroy Bucarelli met with the president friar and heard his complaints. Bucarelli agreed to consider Sarah's suggestions and requests on the administration of Alta California and advised Sarah to put them in writing for further consideration by the viceregal office. Sarah did just that, organizing his thoughts into 32 discrete points, which tended to fall into two broad categories, logistics and political administration. On the logistics side, Sarah said the San Carlos immediately needed to return to Monterey with food, and that the still under construction and much larger ship, the Santiago, needed to be pressed into supply service as well, that goods sent for the missions needed to be clearly marked and labeled, that more fresh meat was needed up north, as were more mules. Viceroy Bucarelli approved it all, except for the mules, and granted Sarah permission to recruit skilled tradesmen, manual laborers, and married indigenous families to return with Sarah to Alta California, to begin building out the material economy there, and to also act as examples of indigenous American nuclear families who had fully embraced Catholic colonial society. On the administrative side, Sarah demanded that Governor Fajes be removed from his post and requested a total of 10 to 14 guard soldiers be assigned to each mission garrison. In addition, Sarah wanted priests granted the authority to have individual soldiers expelled from mission garrisons for, quote, scandalous acts, unquote, which, yeah, means sexual assault. Ultimately, what Sarah requested was near total Franciscan control over the lives of indigenous Californians. Wrote Sarah, quote, Your Excellency should notify the said officer and the soldiers that the training, governance, punishment, and education of baptized Indians, or of those who are being prepared for baptism, belong exclusively to the missionary fathers, the only exception being for capital offenses. Therefore, no chastisement or ill treatment should be inflicted on any of them, whether by the officer or by the soldier, without the missionary fathers passing upon it. This has been the time-honored practice of this kingdom ever since the conquest, and it is quite in conformity with the law of nature concerning the education of children and an essential condition for the rightful training of the poor neophytes." Unquote. Viceroy Bucarelli would indeed affirm Sarah's demands and for the time being solidify Franciscan authority over indigenous Americans. The Viceroy also agreed to remove Governor Fajes, but instead of replacing him with the specific officer Sarah had wanted, Bucarelli turns to a veteran of the original sacred expedition, captain in the Spanish army, Fernando Rivera y Moncada. Sarah received word of Bucarelli's rulings in May of 1773, and after spending a few more months in Mexico City, Sarah checked in at the College of San Fernando for the last time in September and began to trek north to Guadalajara. He spent a few more months there recruiting craftsmen and manual laborers to join him at Monterey, and in January of 1774, Sarah was at the western port city of Tepic. The now completed Santiago, with Sarah on board, took off for Monterey, carrying a total of 98 colonizer passengers and packed to the brim full of relief supplies for the starving Spanish settlement at Monterey Bay. 
On May 9th, 1774, the giant Santiago made its way into the port of Monterey. Prior to the arrival of the relief ship, the colonizers left behind at Monterey had sustained themselves on cow's milk and the generosity of native Rumsinaloni people. Now the mission grounds were covered over in the equivalent of 1,400 bushels of corn, 400 bushels of wheat, 1,000 yards of cloth, and 100 blankets and 400 strings of colorful beads for the express purpose of trading with indigenous Californians, who in their previous encounters with Spanish colonizers appeared to value woven fabrics and often offered string bead necklaces as trade goods. This is, of course, a Spanish simplification of many different indigenous cultures who could value the same commodity in completely different ways, but for the colonizers, it was at least a start. The days of starvation were officially over for the Spanish at Monterey, and the missionaries soon hoped their surplus of food would attract Rumson Ohlone to conversion, rather than their famine-induced misery attracting the Rumson out of pity. From August to December of that year, the missionaries at San Carlos performed 92 baptisms. In addition, indigenous laborers began work on the adobe brick structures that would provide more long-term shelter than the original huts could maintain. Though it remains unclear to me at least whether the Rumson workers were paid for their effort through food or trade goods or were coerced through violent punishment to perform the labor. Inside the adobe church and the offices, the friars installed liturgical art that had been collected and then stashed in huts over the years. By the end of 1774, the colonizers were able to harvest an additional 300 bushels of wheat and corn from the local fields there at Monterey. So, five years since the Spaniards and their colonizing ambitions arrived at San Diego Harbor, the five missions since established had begun to achieve some semblance of stability. In December of 1773, there had been 491 baptisms and 462 residents living at all of the missions since they had been founded. Just one year later, in December of 1774, those numbers had grown to 833 baptisms and 761 residents total at all of the missions. However, for all those gains in both material goods and spiritual conversions to Catholicism, Sarah and the Franciscans had not been able to completely end their conflicts with the secular civil authorities. Even though Sarah had successfully ousted Pedro Fajes from his role as acting governor of the Californias, the viceroy's choice of replacement, Captain Rivera y Moncada, did not kowtow to Sarah's demands or authority. Soon, a new feud between Sarah and this second head of civil authority in Alta California would commence. In 1774, Governor Rivera y Moncada refused to send a guard contingent south to the proposed mission San Buenaventura, temporarily killing the plan for a mission amongst the Chumash that Sarah had wanted established a full five years earlier. The conflict worsened the next year, when Sarah sent two soldiers to track down Rumson Ohlone runaways from Mission San Carlos without the army captain's approval. In August of 1775, the two men agreed to meet in person to hash out their differences, only to wind up in a literal shouting match with each other. After taking a few days to cool down, Sarah went and apologized to Rivera y Mogada and the army captain, 
recognizing that there was a usable surplus of missionary friars currently just sitting around at Monterey, agreed to let six soldiers leave the Presidio to head down south and establish the guard at a new mission to be built somewhere between San Diego and San Gabriel. Next, though, in a move that can really only be described as petty, the President Friar Sarah selected the captain's and Presidio soldiers' favorite priest, a dude named Fermin de la Suen, to also depart from Monterey and establish the new mission in the south that would be dedicated to San Juan Capistrano. After tearful goodbyes at the Monterey Presidio, Friar Lasuen arrived in San Diego in the autumn, and in October of 1775, he joined a convoy of priests and soldiers heading north out of the harbor. Only four guard soldiers remained at Mission San Diego. On October 19th, they arrived at the foundation site and dedicated Mission San Juan Capistrano. They made contact with the indigenous Akachiman people, in whose territory they were actually building this mission, and had some of them perform basic construction labor in exchange for necklaces of beads. Then, in early November of 1775, word reached the colonizers at the nascent mission that the Kumayai had revolted against Mission San Diego and burned it down, the second time they had done so within a six-year time span. The Kumayai uprising against Mission San Diego will get far more detailed treatment in the next episode. For our purposes now, it stands as a convenient bookmark in the narrative, as Sarah's ultimate influence and power in Alta California would slowly ebb following the Kumayai uprising. Here then we'll step inside the mission and get a good look at what daily life inside these religious institutions was like for the indigenous people who lived there, so that we can understand just what exactly the Kumayai were rebelling against. Simply put, in the legal framework of the Spanish Empire, Indigenous peoples who had not yet attained the status of gente de razón were considered to be children, lacking the ability to fully participate in society and requiring both guidance from and protection by their social superiors. This legal precedent carried straight through to the California missions, and from the Kumayai in the south to the Ohlone in the north, native peoples were regarded by Franciscan missionaries as their spiritual and legal charges and thus the natives owed obedience to the friars, much in the same way children owed deference to their parents. This is the ugly, racist foundation on which every single other mission aspect and outlook was built on. Since the friars assumed that, like children, indigenous Californians lacked good judgment and lived with underdeveloped mental faculties, the padres imagined themselves taking the role of total guidance of Native Americans into Catholic Spanish society. And so Franciscan missionaries inflicted extremely regimented daily schedules on the indigenous peoples who had come to the missions and accepted baptism, known as neophytes. A typical day at a mission would begin with the call to attend mass, held every morning and where attendance was mandatory. In later years, attendance would be easy enough to enforce when the neophytes lived in crowded dormitories on the mission grounds. But in these early years, Many indigenous peoples retained their traditional residences and house structures and lived off the mission. Stragglers and absentee neophytes, when located, would be pinched on the ears or beaten with a rod as a punishment for not being on time for mass. Once inside the church, indigenous Californians would be continually exposed to Franciscan Catholic iconography and imagery, 
which the friars hope would expedite the acceptance of Christian doctrine by the natives, and also convey the message of the Bible to an audience that couldn't read Latin, just like medieval churches used to do with mostly illiterate parishioners. We've already seen the first example of Catholic iconography, that being the 15-foot-tall crosses that were the first things to be erected at each mission. Once inside the church building, daily masses would expose indigenous Californians to religious imagery that Sarah himself took particular interest in selecting. He demanded high-quality artwork and sent in orders for pieces from a specific Mexico City painter named Jose de Paez. Paez worked within a medieval-style artistic guild system, wherein workshops trained new artists in formalized programs and passed down their skills from one generation to the next. Baez worked in the Mexican Rococo style, which, according to art historian Cynthia Lewis, can be characterized by, quote, delicate features, sweet expressions, pastel colors, feathery brushwork, and flowery ornament. A successful imitation of Spanish painter Bartolomé Esteban Murillo's vaporous effects and atmosphere and his often porcelain-looking flesh, specifically in his representations of the Virgin, unquote. This style came to an end in the Spanish Empire's 1780 transition to neoclassical academy-trained painters, rather than them staying with the Baroque-style workshop-trained artists, though it shouldn't be too surprising that Sarah gravitated towards the older, less progressive art style. After everyone had gathered for mass at the mission church, the indigenous parishioners would be separated by gender and age. The younger you were, the closer to the front you sat. Women sat at the right side of the altar and would view images of the Virgin Mary, most commonly the Virgin of Guadalupe, meant to reinforce Marian virtue among indigenous women. Men sat on the left side and viewed images of the saints, usually emphasizing the suffering of Christ during the crucifixion, meant to teach indigenous men the virtue of sacrifice as the heads of Catholic nuclear families. Sarah, in particular, desired that these paintings be accurate and iconographically easy to read, but he also wanted an emotional impact as well, so that by the end of these repeated exposures, indigenous men and women would be moved in their hearts to accept what the friars were ultimately imposing by physical force. It was also no coincidence that the saints in the paintings were depicted in the same colored tunics as the Franciscan friars, which was a not-too-subtle attempt to draw a line directly connecting the hollowed figures of Catholicism to the missionary friars in Alta, California. Any indigenous person who happened to fall asleep during the services would be whacked back awake with the same rod that was used to punish latecomers and no-shows. Once daily mass was over, each indigenous neophyte was called up by their newly bequeathed Christian names, to kiss the missionary priest's hand. Not only was this an extremely gross display of colonizer paternalism, it was also the means by which the roll call was taken. The friars would then assign the day's work to the native residents of the mission after attendance had been logged, which, like church services, was separated by gender roles. Theoretically, the missions would instruct indigenous people on not just religious matters, but also function as a de facto trade school that would essentially plug native people into one of the rungs of the Spanish socioeconomic hierarchy. In this explicitly racist society, 
The highest rank a native Californian could aspire to would be a skilled artisan. Crafting items like carts, saddles, shoes, or specializing in a particular material such as would a blacksmith, mason, plasterer, or tanner. The next step below were the fishermen, the stockmen, and the herdsmen, so guys like butchers, tallow makers, hide cleaners, and meat curers. The next rank below that were the horticulturalists, who tended to the mission vineyards, orchards, gardens, and the flocks of poultry and pigeons. The bottom rung were the manual laborers, who cooked up the adobe bricks and worked the fields and harvested the cereal grains. Children were usually assigned to work as weeders or as religious pages. For all their dreamy idealism of voluntary acceptance of Catholicism by indigenous Californians, the friars understood that discipline and punishment were necessary at the missions to enforce the social order that they were attempting to build. The most visible means of control at the mission were the escalota, the guard soldiers. Apart from the obvious defensive responsibilities, the usually six or so soldiers were charged with both enforcing discipline and acting as exemplars of Christian domestic life within a singular nuclear family. The medieval Catholicism that the Franciscans embraced viewed recent converts to the religion as easily susceptible to backsliding into their former beliefs, which were now considered sins, which then could only be corrected through confession or physical punishment. As for the physical punishments, by far the three most common were being locked in shackles, locked and displayed in wooden stocks, or being publicly whipped. These punishments were rarely undertaken by the Padres themselves, but were usually carried out by an indigenous assistant. Whipping was the most common punishment of all, though this was not only inflicted on indigenous people, as whipping was also a common punishment within the Spanish military. On a more philosophical level, since the friars conducted themselves as the legal fathers to their, quote, spiritual children, unquote, corporal punishment could be said to be used in the same way as any other responsible 18th century Spanish parents would have been expected to discipline their sinful children. Though bodily punishment was a norm in 18th century Spain, it was far less so among 18th century indigenous Californians, and usually not a part of child-rearing in native cultures. Franciscan friars not only attempted to enforce social control over indigenous people through physical punishments, but also through the installation of Catholic guilt. Most of this next section here is based off the scholarship of Jose Refugio de la Torre Curial, who studied what amounted to guidebooks for the friars who heard confession from the neophytes. All Catholics everywhere are expected to regularly confess their sins to a priest, in exchange for spiritual absolution from the church, thus alleviating the sin from their immortal souls. But what about when the priest and the parishioners speak different languages, like for example, Spanish and Rumsinaloni? To bridge that linguistic gap, the friars would cobble together a bilingual manual that could then be used to direct questions at the native parishioner and investigate potentially sinful acts. These confessional guides, such as the one written for Mission San Carlos that featured translations from Spanish to Rumson Ohlone, however, reveal the limits of demanding absolute fealty to Catholic morals from indigenous converts. Confession was a rite that could be adapted to local settings, and bilingual confessional guides 
reveal what sorts of negotiations and compromises the Franciscans in Alta California made to more easily impose their religion on native people. To quote Curiel, in the confessional, the missionary attempted to alter the Indian's notions of property, sexuality, or healing, but at the same time made clear that he could not impose a radical or complete change in such manners. Limited as communication might have been in the confessional, this verbal exchange constituted an important middle ground in mission history." Unquote. In particular, Curial analyzes the confessional en carmeleño, the Spanish term for what was likely the Rumson Ohlone language at Mission San Carlos up in Monterey. The confessional is divided into separate sections, addressing different kinds of sins, or outlining quick explanations of Catholic sacraments, phonetically translated into Rumson Ohlone. The first questions posed by the friars centered on sexual activity, and in this there was no sense of compromise. Strict Catholic sexual mores tended to be at odds with more permissive indigenous attitudes towards sex, but of course that also depends on the specific indigenous culture at hand. Once the facilities had been constructed, the missionaries would eventually take to locking all unmarried indigenous residents over the age of seven into single-sex dormitories. Assuming this would both prevent sinful acts among indigenous neophytes and also protect them from rapist soldiers. When sexual assault did occur, according to the priests, the sin was not that an act of violence against an unconsenting person had happened, but that any sort of sex outside the confines of marriage had taken place. Sexual assault inflicted on indigenous men and boys by the Spanish soldiers were largely ignored or overlooked. The next batch of questions, like the ones focusing on the sin of theft, allowed for differing degrees of guilt. Curiel notes that in the Confessionnel, stealing small amounts of food and materials was apparently permitted by the friars, in a possible acknowledgement of the Spanish colonial practice of reciprocal gift-giving with indigenous people at first contact, and or an acknowledgement of the tenuous supply of food at Mission San Carlos in its early years. Other questions focused on indigenous rituals and shamanism, not outright banning the practices, but warning against possible infiltration by the devil. For example, the friars allowed bloodletting as a physical medical practice, but not as a spiritual experience. These sorts of mediations in the confessional show how the Remsen Ohlone, now shackled to this yoke of a social order, still maintains their own agency and could force compromises on the part of the colonizers. This strict Catholic regimen, what Sarah referred to as, quote, the sweet yoke, unquote, did not exempt the priests either. They were expected by and ordered by their superiors to lead self-sacrificing lives, spreading the gospel, while sometimes dealing with total social isolation from fellow Spaniards, let alone other friars. Despite their pretensions towards humbleness and sometimes sincerely rough lives, the Spanish-born friars still occupied the higher rungs of the Spanish social order and the colonies. For example, one might be tempted to equate the whippings doled out to disobedient indigenous people with a practice of self-flagellation performed by the priests, but there are some crucial differences. Firstly, the instrument used to punish natives at the missions inflicted much heavier damage to the human body 
than the friar's own personal flagellating chain. Secondly, self-flagellation as an exercise of meditation on the sufferings of Christ was politely done in private quarters, whereas whippings as punishment were executed in public as a warning to other indigenous people not to break the social order. Thirdly, and by far the most important, is that the friars willingly chose this life, whereas the Kumayai, the Tongva, the Ohlone, and all the other coastal peoples in between them had no say in the arrival of the Spaniards. The empire never asked for permission to be there. This is what the Kumayai literally attempted to burn away from their lands in early November of 1775. Although the mission did indeed burn, it would rise again, and in late June of 1776, Sarah once again departed for San Diego to oversee the construction of what was now the third iteration of Mission San Diego de Alcala. The last time Sarah had gone south, he ended up going all the way to Mexico City and had gotten Governor Fajas fired, and so current Governor Rivera y Moncada freaked out when Sarah arrived at San Diego on July 11th, thinking the wily priest was going to have him fired too. Back up north, the Anza expedition had finally reached San Francisco Bay. Oh, wait, I didn't tell you about Anza yet? Yeah, it's been a bit difficult trying to find just where to shoehorn in this story of yet another expedition of white people making their way into Alta California. And on a personal level, I don't find the first white person to do whatever genre of history to be all that interesting. So suffice to say, in the mid-1770s, a dude named Juan Batista de Anza led an expedition of about 300 colonizers on the first overland route from Sonora and Arizona into Alta California. Their target was San Francisco Bay, occupied by Ohlone and Coast Miwok peoples for at least a couple of hundred generations, and first spotted by Spanish colonizers a mere five years earlier. The goal was to establish a third presidio at the northern tip of the San Francisco Peninsula, overlooking the bay's Golden Gate entrance. Anza and company established the presidio in September of 1776, and the next month, the veteran missionaries Pedro Cambon and Francisco Palau established San Francisco de Assis along the shady banks of a stream named for Nuestra Señora de los Dolores, which leads to the alternative name Mission Dolores. Palau, this time recounting an event he was actually present to witness himself, describes the foundation ceremony here. Quote, A solemn mass was sung by the priests, and when it was concluded, the gentlemen performed the ceremony of taking formal possession. This finished, all entered the chapel and sang the Te Deum Laudanus, and accompanied by peals of bells and repeated salvos of cannon, muskets, and guns, the bark responding with its swivel guns, whose roar and the sound of the bells doubtless terrified the heathen, for they did not allow themselves to be seen for many days." Unquote. Sarah was back at Monterey in January of 1777, the same month that another Bay Area mission was established, that of Santa Clara de Assis, the first mission with a female patron saint. Just as perhaps Sarah was beginning to feel confident in carrying out his vision, with San Diego getting back on its feet and now two additional missions to his north, a new political challenger arrived at Monterey. See, technically Rivera y Mancada only held provenance over the Alta of the two Californias, 
while his superior, the actual, quote, governor of Las Californias, unquote, worked out of Baja and focused on administering the Lower Peninsula. In February of 1777, they essentially swapped places, with Rivera y Moncada getting sent down to Laredo to oversee the Baja Peninsula, while the official governor of Las Californias, Felipe de Neve, would reestablish his office at the port of Monterey. Even though Governor Neve was only nine years younger than Sarah, his Enlightenment-inspired worldview differed starkly with that of Sarah's conservative medievalism. Sarah's absolute insistence on his Franciscan vision for the province had brought him in conflict with prior civil officials, but in Neve, he now had a nemesis who mirrored Sarah in being a true believer in his own convictions. Just as Fajas had been, Governor Neve was highly put off by the missionary's total control over indigenous day-to-day life, and immediately got a taste of Sarah's stubborn opposition when Neve had ordered a full inventory of mission stores and supplies. The Dominicans running the Baja missions complied, while the Franciscans of Alta California did not, as Sarah had detected enlightenment-induced hostility from Neve and began running early interference on his governorship. The conflict only grew from there. While Governor Neve found the strict control over indigenous lives to be generally offensive, he was actually angry at the missionaries' failure to create a sustainable, self-governing indigenous society in Alta California. Echoing similar arguments being made over on the east coast of the continent in the mid-1770s about the necessity of self-governance to maintain a functioning society, over here on the west coast, Neve believed indigenous Californians required self-governance to become productive, that is, tax-paying, members of the Spanish Empire. The idea that Neve sought to implement would be to replicate the model of Spanish town councils and reproduce them amongst the indigenous communities on the mission grounds. In this system, mission residents were to elect indigenous officeholders, alcaldes and regidores, who would hopefully build the foundation of native self-governance. Sarah and the other friars were totally opposed to the idea of indigenous elected officials. They feared for their own total control over indigenous lives that Sarah had won from Viceroy Bucarelli back in 1773. They also didn't want native people in Alta California, now granted rights and responsibilities within a civil, secular governmental apparatus, to think that there were other colonizer institutions that indigenous folks could appeal to if or when they ever had problems with the priests. Ultimately, the missionaries were concerned with the neophytes having, like, lesser respect for the friars once they were endowed with their own political authority, rather than giving the priests the total fealty and obedience they desired. By 1779, the Franciscans down in San Diego were willing to quit en masse over their opposition to the indigenous municipal elections. Writing to the disgruntled friars, Sarah suggested they just manipulate the elections so that only pre-approved native candidates could be voted in, that the obvious social leaders within indigenous communities should be the first alcaldes, and also advised that the elected leaders should come from separate villages. To further assuage the fears of his fellow priests, Sarah openly instructed them not to tell elected leaders what their rights and responsibilities, aka power, actually were, going so far as to literally hide the official documents from indigenous leaders. 
Sarah wrote, quote, The diploma, which is used for conferring these offices on them, may be as solemn as they wish, provided your references are the only ones to get it and read it, unquote. He concluded the letter with, quote, And so the program I have outlined is this. Whatever Neve wishes to be done should be done, but in such wise that it should not cause the least change among the Indians or disturb the routine your references have established, unquote. If municipal elections weren't the existential threat to the missions that the friars feared they would be, then Neve's next plan certainly was. The governor of Las Californias asserted that at some point in the near future, the missions would be secularized. If you remember from last episode, the missions were never meant to be permanent establishments. Once they had theoretically accomplished their goal of acculturating indigenous Americans into Catholic Spanish society, the mission as such would be reorganized into just another local church. The missionary friars would also be replaced by parish priests, who would be answerable to the bishop of the local diocese, rather than an apostolic college or religious order superiors. For the Spanish Bourbon Civil Administration, secularizing the missions came with multiple benefits. Missions had been granted monetary subsidies and legal exemptions from various taxes over the centuries, so the reorganization of a mission through secularization increased state revenue. But beyond the straight financial benefit, mission secularization functioned as yet another battleground in the long-running rivalry between secular and missionary authorities on the Spanish frontier. Replacing the missionary friars with parish priests would help to centralize political power in the hands of the Bourbon administrators. Once the missions were secularized, 100,000 acres of mission land would be redistributed to the indigenous neophyte converts, now considered to be gente de razón. However, Governor Neve would ultimately fail at secularizing the missions during his term, and indeed it would not be accomplished until Alta California was part of a newly independent Mexican Republic. As the 1770s turned to the 1780s, Sarah entered the final chapter of his life, which he mostly spent performing the Catholic sacrament of confirmation. Usually, this secondary rite of passage into the Catholic faith was performed by a bishop, unless a specific priest was given a permission slip from the Pope to perform the ceremony. Sarah requested and was then granted a patent allowing him to perform confirmations in June of 1778. Though naturally, Governor Neve doubted that Sarah had actually been granted such authority and demanded that he personally inspect the paperwork before allowing Sarah to perform confirmations of indigenous converts. Sarah, naturally, ignored him and by the end of the month had confirmed 91 children at Mission San Carlos. A month later, Sarah had confirmed about a third of the total mission population there at Monterey, and in September, Sarah was back aboard the San Antonio, which conducted him back to San Diego to go on a confirmation bonanza. Sarah then made his way back to Monterey on foot, performing the confirmation ceremony for pretty much every baptized native person he could find at the five missions south of Monterey. By the end of 1778, he was back in Monterey, and in August of 1779, he set out to the north to perform confirmations at the two Bay Area missions. That same year, Sarah received word that the political authorities had finally okayed the mission project that Sarah had wanted established for at least a decade. Mission San Buenaventura 
was finally to be built somewhere along the Santa Barbara Channel. Then, Neve threw another wrench into the plan by insisting that the mission founding be delayed until after the governor had established an agricultural pueblo in the south, dedicated to La Reina de los Ángeles. Once Serra received word that the pueblo was good and founded, he once again traveled back down south and in February of 1782 met Neve at Mission San Gabriel, which in the intervening years since its founding had been moved about five miles upstream to its current position after its original site had been washed out in a flood. The colonizers turned to the northwest, and on Easter Sunday of 1782, Sarah finally established Mission San Buenaventura, the ninth in Alta California, and the first in six years. Neve and Sarah continued west along the Channel Coast, and in April founded what Sarah assumed would be a combined Mission Presidio complex at a broad coastal promontory they named for Santa Barbara. At this point, the Spanish army had established fortified military positions at their presidios in San Diego and Santa Barbara in the south, and Monterey and San Francisco in the north. The Franciscan friars could count nine missions in their domain, San Diego, San Juan Capistrano, San Gabriel, and San Buenaventura in the south, and San Luis Obispo, San Antonio, San Carlos, Santa Clara, and San Francisco in the north. However, you may have noticed I left out Santa Barbara, because I'm sure Sarah was quite frustrated to find out Neve was insisting that the Presidio be built before any work on the mission began. So Sarah waited a month, and a second month, but by mid-June of 1782, his impatience with Neve got the better of him, and Sarah decided to return to Monterey without officially dedicating the mission Santa Barbara. That task would end up being left to his successor, Fermin de la Suen. Sarah made his last trip to the Bay Area missions in spring of 1783 to perform more confirmations, and he made his last trip to San Diego that fall for the same purpose. He was back at Monterey in December 1783, and on August 28, 1784, Junipero Serra died at Mission San Carlos. By the year of his death, 1784, the nine missions in Alta California, six of which had been founded by Serra himself, had conducted a combined total of 4,600 baptisms since their various foundings. In addition, all but San Diego were producing surplus food from their agricultural lands, a glimpse into what would eventually become a lucrative economic position for the Mission Fathers. Next episode, though, we'll shift our attention away from these Catholic invaders and focus back on the people whose land they were occupying and what they were going to do about it next time on A History of California.